this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Francis. I'm a host on the New Books Network. And today I have with me Alejandro Nava, a professor of religious studies at University of Arizona. Alejandro, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So I really enjoyed reading your book. I um, it was one of my favorite books I've read in a while, actually. and I'm wondering how you came to write this book. Um, thank you for saying that. That means a lot to me. Um, I, I think uh, that I've, over the years, um, I've been teaching a class on hip hop and religion at the University of Arizona for many years. Like, I can't believe this, but it's been like uh, in, from the early, early 2000s. Um, so I think it throughout that time, I've developed and grown a lot. And and I think one of the challenging things for academics is, you know, once it's really hard to um, lose some of the, like some of the habits and customs of academic writing, especially when you're trained in graduate school, and I think over the course of those years, I've been trying to write more creatively, um, bring a little bit more of myself into the picture. And um, so I, I, in many ways, I think like I've kind of been moving in, in that direction. Um, but I owe it a lot to my students. I, I really think I have it in mind, even though I, I still, I love ideas. I love academic um discussions and conversations, but I always have it in my mind that I want um, to be able to speak to my students and I want uh, a general audience to be, I want my writing to be accessible and um, creative. So I think that was a hope of mine that um, I, I, again, I, I think um, it's again, not to say that I don't find 
academic life intellectually stimulating and exciting and creative. Um, but there's there's also limitations on the style and the form of, of a lot of academic writing and that I was trying to move away from to an extent. Yeah. Yeah, I would say your book definitely has a relevance that a lot of academic writing doesn't have. How um, how did you get interested in hip hop and have you always been interested in religion? Yeah, so it's an interesting, um, so I grew up listening to hip hop. Um, I would actually have to say, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, um, that I, I really was the first to graduate from college in my family. Um, I'm from Tucson, Arizona, Mexican-American um, family. And I was the first to graduate. So I really didn't grow up surrounded by books. I would honestly have to say that some of the rappers were the first to kind of introduce me to the, the magic of language, of words, um, the power of poetry, of, of rhyming, and the extraordinary creativity of what was coming out of the mouth of a lot of MCs in the eighties and nineties and, and then into the two thousands. So I grew up listening to it. Actually, my brother was a, a B-boy and his breaking crew would compete um, in the, throughout the city in, in Tucson. And they were, extraordinarily like creative and it was like an exciting group there was one that was more of a rapper um another one most of them you know would would um they're both b-boys and b-girls um there were two women in in the crew and it was mainly a collective of black and mexican kids and i just remember how it exciting it was in a lot of ways. There was even, there was a rapper um, and they had somebody, uh, they didn't have anybody doing graffiti writing. That was uh, one thing that was lacking. Um, but, uh, but you know, they had all of these things. And I just remember following my brother around and marveling at the dances and at the routines. Um, and, and then particularly, um, at the the inventiveness of some of the uh, the rappers, both in his group, but also obviously what I was hearing on the radio. So, so I, what I'm saying is, I think I'd have to say that rap was really the first to captivate me, um, the art of language, and the richness of the slang and the street idioms and. Um, all of that, um, I think, was very exciting to me. Now, I also had a very strong interest in um, social justice issues. Um, I had an interest in religion <clears throat> um, that developed, um, and I decided to go to graduate school to pursue religious studies. Um, I was kind of, I was particularly interested in Latin American religion um, and especially some of some of the movements called liberation theology that was coming out of the developing countries, especially in Latin America. Um, but I saw it really kind of 
in my own life here in Tucson that um, in the later 80s, the sanctuary movement was part of my, I, I was aware of it. I wasn't, I was too young to be fully involved, but um, but I was aware of it. And, and I remember hearing a lot about the churches that were basically providing sanctuary for a lot of, of refugees fleeing very violent um, circumstances. And that was really kind of um, triggered something in me um, that had lasting consequences. And really, I'd have to say that redirected the, the course of my life. So um, because I was actually as an undergraduate at the university, I was actually an undergraduate at the University of Arizona. So um, I'm fortunate enough to return as a, as a professor. But um, but yeah, the I have to say that, you know, that the sanctuary movement and um, a lot of those social justice um, struggles of of the late 80s and the 90s um, were very formative um, influences uh, on, on my life. And again, kind of running parallel to hip-hop in many ways. I, I thought that hip-hop was also tackling um, social issues, although I never thought that my academic studies and hip-hop would merge. I, I always saw them differently. So um, I ended up at graduate in graduate school at the University of Chicago. And I remember, again, I was pursuing basically like studies in um, philosophy of religion and, and Latin American religion. And I stumbled into this lecture on, I think it was advertised as something like God and hip hop. Um, and I was like absolutely fascinated because I, you know, I loved hip hop, but again, it was like a private interest. I didn't see it connecting with my studies at the time. Um, so I didn't know who he was, but it turns out it was Michael Dyson. Um, I, I didn't know at the time who this professor was, but I was blown away by the lecture. It was on, you know, exploring religious elements of hip hop and um, and this was probably somewhere I vaguely have a memory of it, but it was like in the mid, mid nineties. Um, so it was a very exciting lecture. And, um, so when I got a faculty position in um, the early two thousands at the university of Arizona, I, <clears throat> right away, I thought I, I wanted to create a class on, um, religion and hip hop and, um, they allowed me allowed me to do it, and it's been really a an exciting journey um, teaching the class at at Arizona. Great. So let's now jump into the content of the book. So in the first chapter, you write that we need musical and theological vocabularies that can capture both transcendence and earthiness. Purity and sin, sublimity and banging cacophonous oh, sublimity and the banging cacophonous noise of the streets. We need hip hop's low end frequencies to anchor us in the dirt and grime of the world. And that's a theme that you come back to in all of the chapters: the anchorage to the corp- 
to the corporal and, um, and physical or even the locality of the world rather than rather than something ephemeral and infinite or I guess in addition to something ephemeral and, and infinite. Why, why is this anchorage an important aspect of a living and a vital religion? Yeah, that's such a, a, an important question. And, and it does run throughout my book. You're, you're so right. I, I think that um, especially the perception of theology, um, the perception that a lot of people have is that it's um, obsessed with questions of, of transcendence and otherworldliness um, and that it can have a tendency to, to neglect the physical and um, corporeal, sensual aspects of human experience. And I think what's remarkable about the culture of hip hop, um, and again, I, and I think I point this out throughout the study that, of course, hip hop is deeply flawed. <laughs> I mean, there are many problems with it. I, I'm, I'm not dogmatic about it. Like, uh, I don't, you know, see hip hop as like uh, free from com- like ambiguity and has definitely some some troubling aspects. Um, but I, I really do think that it was a really powerful art form that gave the mic to young um, black and brown youth and and then eventually like marginalized youth throughout the world um, eventually the disenfranchised groups in so many countries that I point that out like even in Russia <laughs> like disenfranchised kids picking up um, hip-hop to be a voice of of dissent and and opposition so I think that it gave the mic to these kids, um, and allowed them to kind of express themselves, their joys, their their struggles, their uh, disappointments, um, their discontent with life as it is in parts of, of the inner city. So there was an aspect of reportage, um, like of being a voice of uh, from the ground level. And I think that that is something that can be extraordinarily valuable to the field of religious studies, um, especially like, as I was suggesting earlier, the the way in which religious studies and theology um, tends to be confined to intellectual conversations and academic contexts or ecclesiastical contexts. And I think the danger is of betraying um, some of the struggles of, you know, of marginalized and unseen um, groups in society that um, that conversations of theology, religious studies would just occur in the universities. And, I, and so I think hip hop like brings it down to earth, so to speak, and, and that really um, can provide an insight in life in the corners of the modern world, um, in the peripheries of, of the modern world. And I think I, I think that's one thing I, I really emphasize, that that's actually really true to the spirit of the biblical tradition, 
the biblical tradition and Judaism, Christianity, um, including Islam, um, has this like focus in both the Bible and in theological texts of being a voice of, especially the prophetic tradition, the prophets, being a voice of the marginalized, the oppressed, the, the, the impoverished. And so I think in that sense, um, I often tell my class that, that I know we, in our day and age, we tend to think of like social justice concerns in a totally secular way. Um, but if you look at the biblical tradition, I mean, these were religious obligations and responsibilities, um, caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger um, was a religious expectation and, and command. So I think in that regard that there can be a lot of, there are affinities between hip hop's um, expression of the struggles of marginalized groups. and um, But at the same time, with all that said, I, I think one of the things I, I start off with in, in the introduction is, is that there's a tension in hip hop studies between those that speak of hip hop, um, as I have just emphasized the, the elements of social consciousness, the commentary, the social commentary. Um, I think that there's some that really want to emphasize the importance of hip hop for social issues, social justice. And on the other hand, those that say, no, it's really not about primarily about social justice. It's about pleasure. It's about the beauty of the music. It's about rhyme schemes. It's about joy. It's about dance. Like reggaeton, reggaeton tends to be dance centric. It's not typically very heavy on like social issues. And um, so I think there's, there is that tension in hip hop studies um, and in hip hop itself of, of artists that are more frivolous with their rhymes or, you know, again, it's, it's more party centric. Um, and then of course there's other artists that are speaking about issues that reflect some of the concerns of the day. And I think hip hop has both and, um, that there's room room for both. Right. And it's not mutually exclusive also, I think. Like part of the t- part of that sensuality or taking part in the joy of hip hop can also be a radical experience. I love that. That's uh, that's exactly what I was trying to convey is that like, again, to, to use um, when I talk about reggaeton in the later chapters of it's it's not always, you know, again, um, I don't think you could reduce music in general to just the lyrics. You know, music is obviously so much more than the lyrics. And again, that's another complaint I have with a, a lot of academic approaches to music is um, thinking that you could just quote these words and it you know, it exhausts the meaning of a particular song. I mean, these are song lyrics. So it's like you have to understand the music and and the dance. Um, so with like reggaeton, I think it's through, I think I use this expression, um, defiance through celebration. 
So I think there's defiance through celebration, through dance, through the 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 loud um, banging beats themselves can be meaningful. And I, I mean, basically, these young kids saying that we're here, we're present, you know, and that kind of rending rendering themselves visible is essential to it. And and you're so right. It's it's not always just like in the socially conscious lyricism. It's interesting because it seems like such a different experience of religion itself. Like worship, there's like a a trend of like, I think you call it like middle class or suburban white middle class Christianity or Catholicism that's, that's worship it's worship with it's without rhythm it's without like yeah. <laughs> so much song the point is transcendence into another sphere rather than music that's going to bring you mm-hmm. to where you are bodily yes yes is that is the is it just a different experience of religion that that music's informing this type of music yes so um Again, when I get to the um, chapters on on reggaeton, I, I specifically turn to the issue of dance more specifically, um, because I think you're so right that religion in general has typically been suspicious of dance. Um, that's not always true in, in other religious traditions. Like, the, I love some of the, the stories of in uh, Hinduism and in, in Indian religious traditions where you know, the gods are portrayed as dancing, but you don't see that much in the Jewish and Christian and Islamic traditions. There's greater suspicion of dance because it's connected to the body. It's connected to sexuality. And so, especially if you look at like the history of American Protestantism, there was like fears of, of dance um, going back to rock and roll um, gyrating hips and all that kind of sexuality. Um, it was also racialized. So there was a lot of um, that associations, not only with the body, but it was seen as um, associated with black traditions. And so there's it's connected to, of course, racism. Um, and so, yeah, generally speaking, in Christianity, and I think that generally holds true for for Catholicism as well, that the music was very ethereal um, and supposed to put you in a mood of meditation, but it never, ever rocked the body. I mean, it never moves the body. And unless, again, think of the Black church, like obviously where it's much more sensual, much more bodily, um, much more joyful and um, I, but, but yeah, so that, that issue of, again, the, the suspicion of religious traditions towards dance, the body and sexuality are, are deeply connected um, in that regard. And I think obviously hip hop um, and music in general is it kind of, expands the horizon of allowing us to see and experience 
um, transcendence in various ways that it doesn't need to be confined to um, a church setting, a church ritual, a church ceremony, um, that there's ways. And so that's why I invoke um, at the beginning, St. Ignatius of Loyola, the, the very simple notion that God is in all things. Um, it was one of his maxims. And uh, I think that's an important insight. And, and, and the book kind of follows that idea that um, that God can be in, in all things, um, including uh, the culture of hip hop. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. That reminds me of something that William James wrote about pluralism or pluralistic pantheism, he called it, which is not obviously what we're talking about right now. But he does critique monotheism for alienating us from God or from the idea uh, or from the divine, really. Because if we're thinking of God as something infinite and something apart from us, we can't really take any meaningful part in it because we're, we're corporeal beings. We're not infinite. We're not, we're, we're here on this earth. So I think that talking about music within hip hop this way seems like a really makes it seem like a really interesting way to connect us with that kind of infinitude in that like the music through the music we can be both anchored to the earth and also we can be you know connected with the divine yeah i think um i guess to put it really simply that there's this typical um tension in religious traditions between what's called transcendence and imminence. You know, God's presence in the earth, God's presence in the rivers and trees and lakes and animals and and in each other. Um, and typically that's the sense of imminence is also what Christianity is understood by incarnation. So being taking flesh and, but, Unfortunately, I mean, I think Christianity acknowledges God taking flesh in the figure of Jesus, but, um, and in creation. If you look, read, especially the history of Catholic theology, there's a strong emphasis on God's presence in creation, like uh, St. Francis of Assisi or something, um, who saw God in animals and, you know, brother, son, sister, moon. Um, but, Again, the the typically not fully in the human body, um, and again, dance in particular. That there was this always this suspicion of dance is associated with sexuality, and that's one of the I think unfortunate biases of Christian theology of like this distrust um, of the body and dance and sexuality. Now. I do point out, like, in a lot of Latin American cultures, um, like I mentioned um, in Cuba in particular, there were hundreds and hundreds of dances 
in these cultures, in Latin American cultures. So, and they were Catholic cultures. So, but I guess what I'm saying is that it was always marginalized from the religious Sarah. Well, there was festivities, religious festivities where dance would have been um, part of those religious celebrations. Um, but it certainly wasn't incorporated, generally speaking, into the rituals, like into the mass, um, for example. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting um, issue of like the, how Christianity and why Christianity developed such pejorative connotations of like the body and sexuality Right. But that's beyond the scope of my book. But it does seem like you're talking about how hip hop is overcoming that. And like, especially in the chapter on Kendrick Lamar, I remember you you say that he's not interested in that God. He's not interested in that God of white supremacy. And he's interested in a black Jesus, one that can deal with with. The, like yeah. the human and the immediate. Yeah, that was exactly what I was um, getting at with um, with Kendrick Lamar, and and obviously he uses it metaphorically, of course. But but for him, God's blackness is something like you know the identification of God with the struggles of marginalized groups, and that and and I think that's true to Christianity that. Jesus embraces the outcasts of society. Um, and yet a lot of times Christianity has privileged the insiders, the, you know, the powerful and um, especially, you know, European forms of Christianity. And uh, so I think that there's a long tradition in hip hop. Um, Tupac, for example, spoke of a of, of black Jesus um, that obviously goes back before hip hop, of course, um, and that you know wants to kind of reframe our understanding of of God through a different lens and uh, looking at it through different non-European experiences and symbol non-European symbols and images. And again, the point is not which a lot of critics of wokeism this day is very popular to bash um wokeism but i think what people are arguing for is not necessarily to jettison all european conceptions of god or christianity all people are arguing for is inclusion like to be more broader to include different human experiences um into our idea of god um, and, uh, I think, um, really ultimately, um, the, the trends of that term wokeism, like literally what it means is being wakeful, uh, being aware, <laughs> being socially aware and believing that the United States needs to grapple with the history of racism and, um, that we need to have a, a racial, as people have said recently, like a, a reckoning with, with race. And I think the critics of so-called wokeism is, are, are basically arguing that we don't need a racial reckoning. <laughs> um, there aren't problems of racism in the history of our country. And, um, 
So, because I do point out at at the outset of the book that um, that there is always those like swings in hip hop, and not just hip hop, but in music in general, or in art, the studies of of art. Like, is art just for art for art's sake, or should it be something more meaningful? Um, and I said that in hip hop, you have these like ebbs and flows. You have pendulum swings where sometimes it's just escapist, where it's just like like somebody like Biggie. He was like a master at like his rhyme schemes and his flow and his voice, like the baritone voice. He was just such a master with um, rapping, with the art of emceeing. And he was again, he's not necessarily talking about social so issues. So it there's aspects of where hip hop can be escapist. Like um, sometimes we need relief from um, the struggles of the day, um, but there's pendulum swings. And then I think around 2010, maybe um, the pendulum started swinging and you start seeing an uprising in voices that want a meaningful content. Um, in other words, like combining somebody once says both the music and the meaning like so i think from 2010 on there was a a stronger sense of like people want more meaningful messages and more inclusive that include different experiences that are more maybe gender bending and um you see this in like reggaeton and like bad bunny who is like like in the Met Gala, I mean, he typically likes to play with gender. And um, so I think people want more meaningful content and are tired of like the hip hop that is only like is misogynistic and, you know, um, can be anti-gay and, you know, that I think for good reasons um, has been called into question. Right. I think, well, I think Kendrick is someone who is really good at bridging both of those things. Like, he's just so musically rich, but also just lyrically, like, insane. Um, and I also wanted to talk about how, like, religion in Kendrick's music, Kendrick's music is, um, is so like multifaceted and so complex. There are a lot of different layers to it. I found like from, from what you were saying, I just had, I listened, he's my favorite artist ever. So I've been listening to him forever, but I, I just heard so many new things after reading your book. Like one layer being that there are biblical metaphors and symbolism. Like you talk about how he uses water in his song thirst and fire and the black or the berry then there are also biblical figures directly discussed like lucifer he talks about lucy um angels and the messiah and then you also have the sonic quality of the music itself which is spiritual and jazzy in and of itself but also really intense and like bass heavy at times it can be both guttural and transcendent. So I would love to discuss all of those layers, starting with with the metaphors. Like, what are some of the metaphors you notice in 
in his music. Um, yeah, I mean, the there are there's so much richness there, and um, so I'll give you a couple. Um, one that a little more explicit is the one you just um, invoked, uh, "Sing About Me, I'm Dying of Thirst," where Kendrick Lamar makes it clear that for him it's about baptism. Um, and so we know that between the mixtapes of Kendrick Lamar's when he was still in his teens, um, he was already really prolific. He was just like, he released many mixtapes before Good Kid, Mad City. Um, but if you listen to him, he's like still searching for his voice. I mean, naturally, he was really young. and um, But somewhere between his mixtapes and Good Kid, Mad City at, in 2012, he, in his own, this is not my view of things, he got religion, you know, he um, had a religious conversion um, where he became more intensely Christian. And a song like Sing About Me, I'm Dying of Thirst, um, <clears throat> I think what's remarkable about Kendrick is he also addresses that, like, hip-hop in the past has addressed a lot of social issues, but he's also addressing like spiritual needs. Um, and I think that's pretty remarkable um, in the culture of hip hop of that he sees a lot of the youth of his generation and younger um, needing things more than just material possessions and um, that there are deeper desires in the human, that the human spirit yearns for. And that's kind of what a lot of his, his music. So I think, you know, he says explicitly that sing about me, the I'm dying of thirst is the waters of baptism. And um, so, and, and has a lot of biblical images of um, connecting with John's gospel of, um, the symbolism of water in there. But let me jump to another, my favorite uh, metaphor um, into Pimp a Butterfly is of course the butterfly metaphor because it's particularly relevant for religious traditions since the butterfly is often a symbol of the soul. And it's such a beautiful image that, <clears throat> that Kendrick Lamar um, plays with onto Pimp a Butterfly is the transformation of the caterpillar from, you know, this early larvae stage um, into the caterpillar into eventually uh, a butterfly who can soar into the skies. And I think, of course, it's a symbol of transformation, um, a religious, of, of kind of a spiritual transformation. And, um, he's like intent on chronicling that in so much from, again, good kid is about, you know, the life of this kid growing up in, in Compton and trying to survive the streets. Um, but it's also about his growing consciousness and a growing spiritual transformation. And, and I, so I love the, the metaphor of the butterfly um, 
And I guess you could see also in To Pimp a Butterfly is where he uses a stronger jazz aesthetic, of course. Um, whereas in Damn is much more of like a Southern influence. Um, trap beats are a stronger, it's more of a, a booming aesthetic in, um, in Damn. Um, whereas uh, To Pimp a Butterfly is more avant-garde it's more creative um so it i i say that you know it's for people to have more sophisticated tastes for for music um which is why it wasn't necessarily like the kind of music for radio play as much as like good kid and and damn was so and i'm really excited to see what happens with his his new album that's supposed to come out soon so so those are two of my, my favorite metaphors, but it's really about, you know, um, so much of that is he's telling a story about his transformation as an artist and as a person um, and as somebody who undergoes a spiritual transformation and embraces um, Christianity. <clears throat> Have you seen his new music video? No, I haven't. What did you think? It was really cool. <laughs> oh, it's um, the heart part. Part four. five, yeah. Part five, okay. There's a lot. It's It was crazy. It was like <laughs> they used deep cuts, deep fakes, I mean. Oh, oh yeah. I, I think I read something that, they, um, that he appears as different characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As oh. Kanye, Will Smith, Nipsey oh, wow. Hussle, a, a bunch of people. I'm curious to, to hear what you think after you see it. Yeah. And uh, what do you hope to see in, in this new album coming out? What do you think it's going to be like? God, I'm I'm super excited about it. Um, I don't know what to expect. Like, I, um, again, I, I um, was looking at... Um, I remember just yesterday I was like flipping through something, just looking at some of the lyrics that appear in um, the heart part four and five. And um, I think, you know, that Kendrick is Kendrick and he's going to always be, um, I think he's going to give us always extraordinarily thoughtful lyricism and masterful, like, rhyme schemes and he switches personas and actually that's a good example of that where you know he he likes to which makes it really difficult i you know when we talk about it in my classes it's like is he speaking for himself or is he embodying a different person there's so much of that where he loves putting on masks and playing different characters so that's why it's very dramatic it's very theatrical because totally. he's playing, he's an actor. He's playing different characters and giving voice to different experiences. Um, so I think, you know, we're going to get all of that. Um, I'm most interested in seeing, like, the production side, like, what the production is going to be like, the music itself. Do, did you find it compelling? The Again, I haven't listen to it carefully yet i i've been swamped with final exams and uh, 
but did you find the music itself compelling? And, like, I did. I thought it reminded me more of To Pimp a Butterfly than Damn. Oh, okay. And To Pimp a Butterfly was, is my favorite of all time. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love it, too. So all right. Well, that's that. good to hear. I'm, I'm excited to, to sit down with it. Yeah. I don't know if that song is part of the album, but it was great. Um, all right. So my final question is... Are you, what's next for you? Are you working on anything following up this, taking a break after this book comes out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, um, in many ways, I'm still, uh, you know, I still teach this class on, on hip hop and religion. And I, there's just so many different dimensions of hip hop that, and I think that the thing that's, interesting about pop music in general these days is how fast it changes. And I think the culture that we live in is always obsessed with the new, like the fresh, like what's, who's coming out next and which can be problematic too. Because I, I mean, if you're an artist, I could see the pressure. Um, no wonder there's so much like issues of anxiety and, sometimes depression. And again, that's another uh, theme I mentioned in the book. And we discuss in my classes of just like this generation of like struggling with these um, mental health. And um, you see it in a lot of the artists as well, um, especially ones that have died too young, you know, um, or drug overdoses. And, but I guess I'm saying that a lot of those issues is this feeling of like this overwhelming pressure to constantly come up with something new right. and you're forgotten, you know, in six months or, or last sometimes, like if it's last month, you're already like the old thing and <laughs> we're looking for something new and fresh. So it's crazy. And you're not even making money anymore from like selling yeah. records. You have to then go and perform forever. Exactly. It's crazy. Uh, there's, there's that issue of like, um, you've got to be doing the concerts and, and all of that. So, um, so there is definitely a lot of pressure. It's, it's always changing, which also can make it exciting that there's always new voices. I think um, what we're going to see a lot more of, and I, again, I mentioned this in the later chapters of, of like, I, I, you know, more um, reggaeton, uh, more, um, Latino voices, I think, are going to be part of um, the future of, of hip hop. So I'm, I'm excited to see how, how that develops. I'm also, and this is now really um, switching beyond hip hop, but I've, I've, you know, was born and raised in the desert regions of Arizona. And I'm always, I'm really interested in the notion of the desert um, and as it connects to migration. Um, you have still the presence of people coming up across the desert, um, often dying in, in the desert on that trek. That still happens a lot. Um, and, and so the image of the desert, of course, is a crucial uh, symbol in the biblical tradition. So I'm kind of interested in the symbol of the desert and as it connects to migration. So I might uh, move in th that direction, but say that hip-hop is always going to be um, an interest of mine. Well, I'm excited it's, to see what's next. 
Thanks so much. I really appreciate the invitation, Francis. Of course. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, of course. Thank you.